Welcome again to Grace Ann Arbor. My name is John Compton. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace, and I uh, am excited to, to be concluding our summer series on the book of Psalms. Uh, the Psalms have been very important to me and continue to be important to me in my faith journey, and I hope to, to share that gift with you this morning as well. Uh, before we begin, will you please pray with me? God, we thank you for your presence here. We thank you that you are the one that's at work, that you are the one that has brought us to this place. And so, God, I ask that as we come to you from many different places, some of us excited about the year that's about to, to, to begin the school year, some of us anxious, some of us exhausted. God, I just pray that however we are, that through this time we would get a better glimpse of you, that we'd have a better understanding of who you are, of who you've created and redeemed us to be and what you've called us to do. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. The psalm we're going to look at this morning is Psalm 103, and please follow along. David writes, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits, who forgives all your, your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good as long as you live so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his way to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always accuse, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. I want you to imagine with me a group of men as they're getting ready to march up a steep hill. These men are on their way to becoming Marines, and the hill is their last obstacle. And so you'd think this is easy enough. It's the last thing. You just push through. But this hill is known as the Grim Reaper. And it's the last obstacle in a three-day challenge that's called the Crucible. The Crucible involves 50 miles of hiking and crawling and marching with 30 pounds of gear. So by the time these men get to the Grim Reaper, they've been hiking for over two days, all on four hours of sleep. So they are experiencing physical exhaustion greater than probably anything we've ever encountered. And so as they go up the hill, they go slowly, and they're stumbling. And after a while, after enough stumbles, they realize they need to hook arms with each other to provide balance. But still, even with their arms hooked, they're moving at a snail's pace. So one of them asks the group, why are you doing this? And this isn't a question of desperation. This is actually something he was trained to do, that they were trained to do, is in moments of difficulty to ask why questions. Because if you can connect a difficult moment with a deeper why, a deeper purpose, it gives you strength for the journey. And so one of the men replies, 
to become a Marine and to make a better life for my family. And this man really meant this because he just became a father. But he had yet to meet his newborn daughter and had only gotten to to talk to his wife, the mother of his child, for about five minutes after her delivery because it all happened while he was at boot camp. But he had made that connection to his why and he had strength to march up that hill. So between that why and the community around him, he could march up that hill. Now, this why question, of course, has a flip side, right? Because there are times and moments when we ask ourselves why and we can't find a good answer. Uh, I knew of a girl once when she was in college, her parents and family kept asking her why she was dating this boy. They're like, why, what do you see in him? Why are you dating him? Why him? And she had a couple answers at first, but then time went on and she realized she didn't have a good why. And so she broke up with him. And I know this because I was that boy. <laughs> the, this psalm, Psalm 103, what it does, is it invites us to ask the why question about why we worship what we worship. Because we all worship something. And sometimes we worship God, and that's what the psalm primarily talks about, but it also invites us to reflect on why would we worship something else. And if that sounds confusing, we'll dive into that later, but this psalm invites us to ask, why do we worship what we worship? And it makes a compelling case to worship the living God. And that, of course, is my hope, is that that as we explore this, that we would have more confidence, that we would have a, a deeper desire to lean in, to worship the living God, and to experience his transforming power in our lives. The psalm begins, David's believed to be the author, with David saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. David has a sense of desperation in his voice, that that he knows it's of utmost importance that that his whole soul, his whole self, would worship God. Now, why is he so desperate? Well, he's so desperate because he knows that worship either leads to life or to death. Worship either leads to life or to death. Now, if that's something that you're having a hard time grasping with or you're kind of skeptical of, one of the most compelling cases I've ever heard for this truth was not made in some verse in scripture, is not uh, some writings of a Christian author, but is actually the novelist David Foster Wallace who spoke these words in a famous commencement speech he gave several years ago. This is, listen to what he said. He said, In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what we worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing is that pretty much anything else will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age begin to show themselves, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid. 
and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Worship either leads to life or to death. And even if you're here today and you're exploring Christianity, this is something you've probably experienced. You've probably sensed that that you have to give your allegiance to something. You have to desire something above all else. And maybe you're here today and you grew up in the church and you've been coming for a long time and, and you're thinking of walking away that the church, that Christianity, it just hasn't seemed to work in, in the day-to-day trenches of your adult life. And I understand that. I really do. There are times that I've considered walking away. But know this, you can walk away from the church, you can walk away from Christianity, but you cannot stop worshiping. You have to worship something. Now, why do we worship what we worship? Well, it's simple. We worship things that benefit us. This is what David says in verse two. He says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and do not forget all his benefits. Right? We worship things that benefit us. Right? We worship money because it's benefited us. It's purchased clothes. It's purchased uh, food. It's bought us house. Sometimes we worship money because it gives us a sense of security. We worship beauty because it gives us affirmation and approval and acceptance. We worship our intellect because it gives us respect and power. And David invites us and invites himself to worship the living God because he has benefited us the most. David, in this psalm, in verses 3 through 5, he kind of goes through this rapid succession. And he says, worship the Lord and don't forget all of his benefits who's forgiven your iniquity, who's healed your diseases, who's redeemed your life from the pit, who's crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. He goes on and on. He ends this portion of the song by saying, worship God because he he doesn't treat you as your sins deserve. And if we compare what God does to us and for us to what these other things do, it's no competition, right? Like let's compare worshiping beauty and worshiping money. Right, if we worship beauty and we commit iniquity against it, iniquity just means to go wayward, to go off the right path, how does beauty respond? Right, if you forgo your daily personal hygiene, if you forgo using all the creams and oils and lotions and things, if you forgo exercising and if you, you, you start you know, eating Krispy Kreme cheeseburgers um, for every meal, right, beauty gives you what you deserve. If you worship money and disease comes into your life, right? Money flees, right? You've got to pay for those bills. But there are some diseases that come that money, no amount of money in the world can save you. And so David says, worship God because he heals your diseases. He forgives your iniquity. And it, and it makes sense to simply ask the question, well, why, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't we worship God? If this is what God does, and this is what worshiping money and power do, it's no competition, right? Why wouldn't we worship God? And yet, I'm sure there are many of us here today that can easily respond, I'll tell you why I don't worship God. Because he hasn't healed all my diseases. 
And maybe God's forgiven me of all my iniquities, of all my sins, but in the day-to-day trenches of life, what does that matter? Right? And David may say that God doesn't treat me according to my sins, but based on my life, it seems like he's actually treating me worse. Based on the pain and suffering that I've endured, based on the meaningless job, based on the relationships are falling off uh, apart, based on, on the abuse that I've received, that's why I wouldn't worship God. And on top of that, worshiping money and power seems to be working for some people. Right? It's not ruining their lives. It may be ruining other people's lives, but they seem to be doing just fine. So why would I worship God? And so the question is a little bit deeper. And the question becomes, why would I worship God when I am not experiencing his benefits? Right? That's the real question. Why would I worship God when I'm not experiencing his benefits? And David seems to anticipate this. He says in verse 6, The Lord works vindication and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. What David is saying is that in moments of present doubt, we look to the future and to the past. In moments of present doubt, we look to the future and to the past. And this is something we do in other areas of life. If you're like me and maybe have an on-again, off-again relationship with exercise, there is a certain pain that comes with that first day back, right? If you've gone weeks, months, or years, and you get back into exercising or lifting, that first day is a special kind of pain. But you keep going, not because it feels good, but because you know it will get better. Right? And that's what David is saying here. He's saying, look, it may be bad now. It may be really difficult, but don't forget who God is. God is the one who brings vindication. God is the one who brings justice for the oppressed. Right? He looks forward. Now, how does he know that? Well, then David looks backwards. He knows what God will do because of what God has done. And he pulls out the big gun. He's following, David does what's called the Sinatra rule. Frank Sinatra had the famous song, New York, New York. And there's a line in there that says, if I can make it there, I can make it anywhere. If I can make it in New York City, I can make it in any place in the world. And David's doing the same. He's saying, if God, what God has done through Moses to the people of Israel, if he can do that, he can handle whatever situation you and I will encounter in life. Now, this story of what God did in Egypt for the people of Israel is one that for many of us is just like a little Sunday school story that we've heard a million times, right? The people of Israel were enslaved for a while. God sent Moses, did his magic. They were redeemed, got the Ten Commandments. Everybody was happy. And when we move through it just like that, which is our default way to do something that's become familiar, we miss out on the power of God, and we particularly miss out on just how hopeless the situation was. The people of Israel were enslaved for 400 years. Right? I don't think any of us have a concept of how long 400 years is. America as a country has been a nation for 242 years. So if you can imagine being slaves today, 
and your parents being slaves and your parents' parents being slaves, etc., etc., going all back, all the way back to 1776, you would be just over halfway to the 400-year mark. Right? This is all they knew was being slaves in Egypt. And, this, and the country, nation of Egypt at the time was powerful and they ruled with an iron fist. The leader literally passed a law to kill the male children of the people of Israel. And yet God faithfully delivered them, the people of Israel, from Egypt and did this in a matter of a few days. And so David says, look back and see how faithful and how strong God was to deliver his people from external oppression. But then David also looks back in a different kind of synoptic rule and he says, look at how patient God was with the foolishness of the people of Israel. Right? He says in the next verse, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Now, God isn't saying this about Egypt, the people of Egypt. He's saying about, about his own people. Because the same people who were brought out of Egypt, who had been enslaved for 400 years, were the same people who, not too long after being saved and rescued, decide to make a god out of a golden calf and worship it because they didn't like and didn't understand what God was doing. Like, they were so foolish in their dealings. And David says to them, not only is God able to deliver his people from external oppression, but God is so patient with people when they are really, really foolish. And this is one reason why I really encourage people in their faith journey to regularly read the Old Testament. I know there are parts that are confusing and difficult to understand, but the overarching theme of the Old Testament is a story we have to hear again and again that we need to get inside of us. That God, again and again, is faithful to defend and protect his people. That despite how foolish his people are, which there are plenty of stories of how foolish they are in the Old Testament, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And sometimes it's only by reading something that's long that we can get the truth of it inside of us. Years ago, when I graduated college, uh, I got a degree in engineering. And for those who are engineers will know this, like we don't read a lot of fiction in our classwork. Uh, it's not a required reading. And so I decided to become, to take a step towards becoming a more well-rounded human being was to read uh, a novel. And I thought I would just go with a classic novel and I picked one that sounded really cool. And I foolishly chose The Count of Monte Cristo. And I foolishly chose it because it's just a huge book. It's a great book, you can read it, you should read it but it's huge. The copy that I have is a thousand pages long, and I think it literally took me over a year to read it. Anyways, part of this story is that the main character is falsely accused of a crime he did not commit, and because of that, he is put in prison, and he ends up being in prison for about 21 years. And what that means in this thousand-page book is that for 100 pages, he is in jail. And that's it, like he's in jail. Like, and that's what you read about page after page is that, yep, he's still in jail. And the next day, <laughs> guess what? Still in jail. And it just goes on and on. And I was reading at a snail's pace at the time, and I, it was probably a month of him being in jail. And after such a long time, I felt like I was in jail <laughs> with him. And so when he escaped, which if you haven't read that, that happens, sorry. Um, but when he escapes, 
I was filled with joy. I was excited. He's free. We're free. He's now out of jail. And this is similar to what happens when we read the Old Testament. Right, because we see story after story of God being faithful to his people, to delivering them from people, from oppressive external forces. We also read story after story of God's people being really foolish, where you just go, how could they be so dumb? And yet, you see God being patient and being abounding in steadfast love. And we need that because we know, I know, that there are just plenty of times that I am really foolish and I do things that are really dumb. So like David says, in the midst of present doubt, we look to the future and to the past. And the good news for us who are here today is we have a better understanding of who God is and what he's going to do. We have a better picture of the future because we know of Jesus. God didn't just send another person, but God became a person in the flesh, in the form of Jesus Christ. And we saw him as a person who went around and healed all the diseases, who forgave all the sins, and freed those who were crushed from the weight of shame. And we know because of all that, that one day when Christ returns, every tear will be wiped away. Sin and sickness and cancer and death, all of that will be no more. And we know that's the future because, again, we look to the past of how God has worked in the world. And again, we see a better picture, something greater that God has done than redeeming the people of Israel from Egypt. We see God in the flesh, in the form of Jesus Christ, marching up another hill, taking on the burden of sin and shame and death and putting it to death in his own body, on the cross. And he rose from the grave, victorious over it all, and he offers an abundant life to all who turn to him. This is the good news of Jesus. And we know that because God has done all of that in Jesus Christ, that no matter what you and I will go through, God is the God who brings vindication, who brings justice to the oppressed, and who will one day make everything new. So the answer to the question of why do we worship when we're not experiencing his benefits is we worship God even when we don't feel like it because of his past faithfulness and future justice. We worship God even when we don't feel like it because of his past faithfulness and our knowledge of his future justice. Now how do we do this? How can we better lean in to this worship? Let me give you just a couple things. One is to enmesh ourselves in God's story, is, is to hear these stories again and again of God's faithfulness, that we begin to see ourselves in God's story, that the ways that God was at work in the past are ways that he's at work in our very lives this day. Secondly, and what we've been doing with this series in the Psalms, is to put words of worship in our mouth. Right, this is the, one of the great gifts of the book of Psalms, is that if you regularly re- read through it and pray through it, you are putting words of worship in your mouth, even in moments when you don't feel like it. And sometimes these are words of praise, where, where it's the middle of winter and you're sick of the outdoors, 
and you just want things to change, but it invites, the Psalms put words of worship praising God for the wonders of creation. At the same time, the Psalms put words of, of anger, of sadness, of despair, of anxiety, these things that we often just try to hide from others, from ourselves, from God, and, and the Psalms invite us to bring our whole self before God. And God says that that is an act of worship. So my question for you is how might you better incorporate the Psalms in your life? Maybe as we've gone through this series, you've had one or two Psalms that have been meaningful to you. Maybe spend some time rereading those and maybe even memorizing those. And maybe you're just going through something and you can't put your finger on all the emotions that you're feeling. I really want to encourage you, seek out the Psalms. I guarantee you there's 150 Psalms. And I guarantee you there's a Psalm or two that can put its finger right on the emotions that you're going through right now. Now as we go back, I want us to go back to that image of those Marines climbing up that hill. Exhausted and worn out. Because I know that some of us are here and we feel that way. We feel so tired in our bones. And yet we have to take another step. Every morning we have to get up. We, some of us have to get our kids ready for the day. Others of us go to work. We have to participate in, in conversations that we just don't care about. And we're just so exhausted to keep taking step after step. If you're there, I just want to offer two things to you. One, know that you're in a community full of people who want to link arms with you, who want to march with you up that hill. And so if you're in a community group, be honest. Let those people into your lives because they want to help. And if you're not in one, please consider joining one. This is why we talk about community groups week in and week out because we all need people to link arms with as we go through the various hills of life. And more importantly, know that Jesus himself wants to link arms with you. That he wants to march with you on whatever hill you're on. And we know this because Jesus marched up another hill. He marched up a hill that was leading to his death on the cross. And we know in that moment when he asked himself, why am I doing this? The writer of Hebrews says, it is for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, that you were the why that Jesus stayed on the cross. You were his why to endure that pain and suffering. And so if you were the why that he marched up that hill, he is more than willing to hook arms with you and march up any other hill you may encounter in your life. So I just want to leave you with these words. Bless the Lord with all your soul and all that is within you. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord with all your soul and do not forget his benefits, who offers forgiveness for your iniquities, who offers healing for your diseases, who has redeemed your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Let me pray for us. Good and almighty God, we thank you for the gift of Jesus. And we pray that you would continue to open our eyes to see the beauty and wonder and the power of your love. God, we pray 
that for those of us who are full of anxiety and fear, that you would provide a community around us, offering support and encouragement, that we would learn to lean on you, that we would know in the depths of our soul that you are with us, that you have provided a people to care for us. Let these truths transform our hearts, our souls, and mind, that we would enjoy all the benefits that you've given to us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.